Amen. Luke chapter 11 tonight, as we continue our series in the Gospel of Luke. We have outlines around at every table. If you need one, there may be some tables that have extra. Okay, I'm really challenged by these. There we go. Stay. Um, Also, just to share with you, starting on Sunday, we finished up the study of James last Sunday. So starting Sunday, we're going to be doing a short series preparing ourselves for Christmas, um, looking at the first couple chapters of the book of Hebrews at the glory of Christ. If we're going to have a glorious Christmas, uh, we need to see Christ in all of his glory. And so we hope to accomplish that as we study the first couple chapters of Hebrews. Um, And of course, we're just going to continue to plug away through the Gospel of Luke up until Christmas time on Tuesday nights. One of the things that God has been impressing upon me is this. The tragedy of life is not how short it is. It's that it takes so long for most of us to really start living it. And we have seen that throughout our study of James, where he tells us life is a vapor. We've seen that in the challenges that Jesus Christ has given in his ministry. And we're going to continue to see the importance of that tonight as we look at Luke chapter 11. The first thing we see there in the first 13 verses is Jesus' teaching on prayer. And uh, we could spend weeks just on the Lord's Prayer and dissecting it, but uh, I wanted to bring out just a couple of things tonight. First of all, notice there in verse 1, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he stopped, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. You'll notice that Jesus didn't go to his disciples and say earlier on, now, let me teach you to pray. He first modeled praying. He first set an example. He wanted to create a thirst within his disciples for what he was doing so that they would approach him with that kind of hunger. They were always seeing Jesus withdrawing himself and talking to the Father and praying. Faith is caught more than it is taught. And even in the aspect of prayer, if you and I want to, in a sense, be a good example, one of the ways that we can do that is just by being a praying people, by talking to the Lord and communicating with Him throughout the day. Uh, you know, I, one of the things I learned is that prayer is like breathing because you can do it You can do more than one thing at a time. And uh, so we can talk to God throughout our day about anything, anywhere, anytime. But it began with Jesus setting this example of prayer. I can still remember my own father, that my father never sat me down as a child and talked to me about the importance of prayer. I just saw my dad always praying. I would pass the bedroom and I would look in and I would see him on his knees next to his bed praying about something. 
My dad set an example and modeled prayer for me and taught me the importance of it just by doing it and by me seeing that throughout his life. Then you'll notice that Jesus gives a pattern or model to follow. Not that we couldn't repeat these words, but these are more of, a, of an example, a pattern that Jesus lays down for us in verses 2 through, through 4. And, and one of the things I wanted to point out here is you'll notice that Jesus wants us to understand that prayer is about a relationship. That's why he starts off with the term Father. And, and why then he goes into talking about that our prayer should be focused on God. Because he starts out by talking about his name being hallowed and his will being done and his kingdom coming. In fact, I put there in the notes that the purpose of all prayer is really staying in touch with God so that I continue to know that he's the God that he's revealed himself to be. That I continue to believe that he is that God. And the reason I say that is because starting in verse 5, Jesus talks to them about, hey, suppose you had a friend. And, uh, you know, this friend came knocking on your door at midnight because he got some unexpected visitors and uh, he needed some loaves of bread or some provisions to sort of feed his guests. And the guy didn't want to get up out of bed and he was bothered and said, yeah, don't, don't bother me or whatever. And finally the guy persisted and he was shameless. And so finally the guy got up out of bed and gave him what he wanted just so he could go home and, and shut him up and get back to sleep. And Jesus is sharing that not to paint a picture that that's the way God is. He's reluctant to hear our prayers and respond. He's doing just the opposite. He's saying, your father is nothing like that friend. In fact, he's more than a friend. He is your heavenly father. Which is why then in verse 9, he encourages us to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Because he goes on to say and talk about the character of God. And it is through prayer that we maintain who God has revealed himself to be. I'll say a little bit more about that in just a minute, but I, I want to get to what Jesus says. Notice in verse 11, he even says, Hey, what father among you, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? If he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? I mean, totally preposter, pre preposterous. Can't talk, had too much pie. Verse 13, if you then, although you are evil, simply meaning we are fallen human beings who have a fallen human nature, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? In other words, He's saying, God loves to respond to our prayers. And God will give us things that are good for us. But more importantly than us going to God and thinking that prayer is all about getting what we want or changing of our circumstances or whatever, prayer is more about changing us, the prayer, than it ever is changing what we're praying for. It is more about 
again, staying grounded in who God is. That's why later on in Luke 18, Jesus said, people ought to always pray and not to faint. But the word faint there in the Greek language means to start to think evil of. In other words, he's saying that if you and I stop praying, it's probably because we are beginning to get warped in who God is. We either think He doesn't care and isn't going to answer our prayers or respond to us, so we stop praying. Or He's really not the good, loving God that He's revealed Himself to be. And so again, we begin to pull back from God and isolate ourselves. Jesus says, be careful of that as a Christian. Part of the reason why we need to stay in communion with God through prayer is that even if our circumstances don't change, even if God, in a sense, doesn't answer the prayer maybe the way we want to, the more important thing is that we stay grounded in who God has revealed Himself to be. Regardless that we believe God is who He said He is. That's what prayer is all about. And that's what Jesus is saying. That part of the motivation, part of the foundation, maybe the greatest purpose of all for prayer is staying in touch with my God so that every time I am in His presence and I commune with Him, I am reminded, yep, that's who God is again. Yep, that's, that's Him. Because if I begin to pull away from God, and I stop talking to God, and I stop sharing my heart with God, it's not necessarily, again, that something dramatic is going to change in my life, but my view of God is going to start to change. I'm going to start to develop an erroneous view of God. And that's why Jesus shared verses 5 through 13 after talking about prayer. Because all these verses are really about continuing to see God in the light that God has revealed Himself in Scripture, regardless of how things are turning out and how God is responding. It shouldn't matter. He is who He said He is regardless. And so that's the purpose of prayer. So the next time you're talking to God in prayer, remind yourself. I'm communicating with my God and I'm talking to Him about things and I'm sharing my heart with Him and I'm sharing things with Him because He's my Father. And I want to stay in contact with Him so that I remind myself throughout the day and every day that He is the God that He revealed Himself to be. I'm not going to pull away and start to start to see of my view of God start to turn because things maybe aren't changing in my life. Circumstances, whatever. Then he talks about spiritual warfare beginning in verse 14. Jesus has been casting out demons and people and he comes and he casts out this demon and some people in the crowd were obviously amazed but the Bible says some of them were attributing Jesus' power to do this by the power of Satan. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to teach, in a sense, on spiritual warfare. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of the things that Jesus is going to share in this passage, in verses 14 through 23, 
is that there are only two spiritual kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, and there is the kingdom of Satan. There are no other spiritual kingdoms, if you will. And so, one of the things we have to keep in mind is that means that everything finds its source from one of those two kingdoms. That even means for us that everything that we do and say is either promoting the kingdom of God or it's promoting the kingdom of Satan. Think about that. That there's no middle ground that way. Either what I say and what I do is promoting the kingdom of God or it's aiding somehow the kingdom of Satan. Because there's only two spiritual kingdoms. That's why Jesus said that's preposterous to his audience. He said a house divided itself against itself can't stand. He said, why would Satan be using me to cast himself and his kingdom out of people? That, that doesn't make any sense. That's why Jesus goes on then, if you'll notice in verse 19, and say, now if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? I love that. They... They were okay with their sons casting out demons, and they, they said that was by the power of God. But Jesus comes along and said, no, you're doing it by the power of Satan. In other words, they sort of picked and choosed what they liked and what they didn't like. People have always been that way with Scripture and with the things of God. And then he says, therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, I think he's reaching back to Exodus, where... In the book of Exodus, the term finger of God is used whenever the magicians of Egypt could not duplicate what Moses and Aaron were doing any longer, and they said, this must be the finger of God. Jesus picks up that concept here. And he says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has already overtaken you. And when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his possessions are safe. I think the strong man in this context, verse 21, is Satan. But I love this, verse 22. But when a stronger, mightier man attacks and conquers him, he takes away the first man's armor on which the man relied and divides up his plunder. Jesus is claiming authority over Satan and Satan's power and Satan's kingdom. Jesus is stronger. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And in this climate of spiritual warfare that happens in our lives periodically as Christians, we need to remind ourselves there's only two spiritual kingdoms. But we also need to remind ourselves Jesus is stronger than anyone or anything we'll ever come up against. And that's why Paul could say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God wants us to live in his power daily. Then Jesus says, again, because there's no neutrality, we're either on his side or Satan's side. Notice what he says in verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. That's sobering to think about. We're either supporting and helping and aiding the kingdom of God and the gathering of souls and the building up of saints, or we're somehow tearing down what God would like to do. Then I love this. 
Jesus is teaching next in verse 24 that only God can bring transformation to a person's life. Man can reform himself, but reformation is never complete and it is never eternal. In a sense, man can clean himself up, if you will, for a little while. But it never lasts, and it's never complete. Only God can come into a person's life and transform them from the inside out and clean them not only for now, but throughout eternity. Which is why in verse 24, he gives this illustration. He says, hey, when an unclean spirit goes out of a person, it passes through waterless places looking for rest. Simply for intermission. The word means cessation of motion. In other words, even demons like to just sort of find somebody that they can settle down with and be there for years. Demon, demonic spirits don't like to move around from person to person, if you will. But notice what he says. I will return to the home I left. When it returns, it finds the house swept, clean, and put in order. It goes and brings seven other spirits, though, more evil than itself, and they go and live there so that the last state of the person is worse than the first. Don't miss what Jesus is teaching. This person, in a sense, has went through reformation, trying to clean themselves up, if you will. But that the emptiness, I'll say it that way, in their life was never filled by God. So that when the demonic spirits came back, guess what? They brought even more than they did the first time. Because the only thing, the only person that can fill the emptiness of a human heart is Jesus Christ. And if a person somehow gets rid of vices and things in their life, but then doesn't fill up their life with Jesus Christ, then... Jesus says, guess what? Eventually, those vices are going to come back tenfold compared to what they used to be. Because the emptiness still is there. Let's remember, folks, only God can transform our lives. And He wants to do it from the inside out. Then saving transformation results in obedience. As he said these things, verse 27, a woman in the crowd spoke out to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. If one is truly being transformed or being transformed, as Paul would say it, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. Then it will lead to obedience. I'm going to get off a little bit here tonight. One of the things that God has been speaking to me about is sort of the crisis that we're in in the days in which we live, and I'm not even talking about the crisis in the world and the Middle East and politics. I'm talking about the crisis in the church. And the crisis is this, that there's probably very few Christians that would deny the teaching of the Word of God. 
But the problem today is that the teaching of the Bible isn't shaping their life. They're not allowing it to impact their life. It doesn't carry any weight. They might say, well, I believe that and I don't deny that, but on an everyday basis, is the Word of God really impacting Christians' lives, at least those who profess to be Christians? Is their collision with the Word of God changing them? Because it should be, as Jesus said. In a sense, God is resting very lightly upon the church today rather than heavily. And what I mean by that is, The whole concept of God's glory, literally if you study that out and you do a word study, the word for glory in the Bible about God literally means to have weight or carry weight, to be weighty. In other words, if we're giving God glory, that means the things that God says carries weight. It it weighs on us in a proper way. In fact, If God says it, it should carry more weight than anything or what anyone else says. What God thinks should carry more weight than what anyone else thinks. That's giving God glory when His weight, if you will, of His glory is resting heavily on the church and influencing and impacting lives instead of just sort of laying on the top. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying real blessing comes when people obey the Word of God and allow the Word of God to impact and influence their life. By the way, the word obey here in the Greek language means to guard, to watch, to observe with care. It's almost as if like What the psalmist says, your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path, that that the Bible paints a picture of itself as being this this compass, this map, this this, uh, navigational tool that God has given me to navigate and get through life, and I, I should be keeping it close by at all times, referencing it and referring to it continually. It should never be out of my mind or out of my heart. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you, the psalmist said. All right, I'm coming back now. Spiritual light. Speaking of light, Jesus says in verse 29, as the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, this generation is a wicked generation because it looks for a sign. I put there in the notes, don't be experience-oriented. We live in a world today, again, even in the church, where the Christians are about getting from one experience to the next experience. God is about training us every day. And that's why Jesus teaches here, instead of being experience-oriented, instead of always asking God to prove Himself, instead of always asking for a sign, be revelation-oriented. Dive into what God has already revealed. Focus on what you already know rather than what you don't know. 
That's why Jesus said there's not going to be any sign given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. And then he says, verse 31, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. Why? Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And someone greater than Solomon is here now. In other words, Jesus saying, here was this Gentile woman who went to extremes and, and overcame unbelievable obstacles to hear the revelation of God through Solomon. He says, here is the wisdom of God, Christ, the Lord, the creator of the universe. I'm standing in your midst and you don't even want to listen to what I've got to say. And he says, the queen of the south is going to stand up in judgment of you because compared to her, in fact, this word condemn is an interesting word. It means by one's good example to render another's wickedness more evident. In other words, her good example of what she did and going through all that she did to get to Solomon to hear the wisdom of God is going to render their lives even more wicked because contrast, there's a big contrast. And then Jesus goes on to say we need to be changed by God's revelation, which is what he's been talking about. When he says in verse 32, the people of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation in Canaan because they repented when Jonah preached to them. Again, the word repent means to change one's direction because my mind has been changed. They literally changed the direction of their life based upon the preaching of Jonah, the word of God, the revelation that God gave his prophet to give to them. The Bible is not for information, it's for transformation. God doesn't give us this book so that we can know facts. He gives us this book so that we can become more like Jesus Christ. Some of you have heard this said over and over again by me, but... I'm going to fit it in again here. There are some people that I've known throughout my ministry and throughout my Christian life that could name every beast in the book of Revelation, and they act like it too. <laughs> it does no good to know a bunch of information about the Bible if the Bible isn't making us more like Jesus. And then he goes on to say God's revelation then brings illumination to our lives. And so he wants us to keep focused on God's revelation, beginning in verse 33. He says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it under a basket. He puts it on a lampstand so you can see the light. And he says, your eye is the lamp of your body. In other words, it's through your eye that you receive the light and you are able to focus on it so that it benefits you. He says, so when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light because it, it can receive the light that it's seeing. But if your body is diseased. If your eye is diseased, your body's full of darkness. And then he makes this very important statement, verse 35, therefore see to it that the light in you is not darkness. Whoa. In other words, in the context here, these folks that he, were talk that he was talking to was actually very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. 
but they had become so familiar with the Old Testament scriptures and so complacent about the word of God that it was no longer changing them. They knew the scriptures. They could give you Bible references. They could quote scripture. They could tell you where that verse was located and what they said, but it was not making a difference in their life. And so you're saying all this light that you seemingly have inside of you, it's not producing anything but darkness. He says, when God's light truly changes us from the inside out, it will give us illumination. Verse 36, if then your whole body is full of light with no part in the dark, it will be as full of light as when the light of a lamp shines on you. The phrase full of light means to be illuminated, to comprehend, to grasp. The word shines means to enlighten, to give understanding And that's what God's revelation will do. If we're serious and we focus on God's light, we will begin to comprehend and grasp and have an understanding and an insight and be enlightened to the things of God like never before. And I just want to commend you all and thank you all for your hunger and thirst for the word of God to dive in, to learn more of God's word so that all of us can be more illumined to what God has revealed. And finally tonight, Jesus' clash with the religious leaders beginning in verse 37. Jesus clashed with the religious leaders more than he did anyone else for several reasons, and most of them are listed here in your notes tonight. Notice, as he spoke, a Pharisee invited Jesus to have a meal with him, so when he went in, he took his place at the table. Do you know that Jesus never turned down an invitation? even to somebody like a Pharisee. The Pharisee was astonished when he saw that Jesus did not first wash his hands before the meal. Now, Jesus wasn't being unhygienic. The Pharisee was talking about this ritualistic washing that they were to do. And that's when the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees, you clean the outside or the external of the cup and the plate But inside, within, internally, you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Didn't the one who made the outside make the inside as well? Give from your heart to those in need and everything will be clean for you. In other words, if your heart and the motivations of your heart are right, If the counsels of your heart are right, if you're doing it right from the heart, then what you do will be sincere and genuine. If your heart's not right, then your actions will be warped in some way because they're flowing out of a heart that's not right. And so I put there, one of the reasons why Jesus was always clashing with the religious leaders is because their emphasis was on the external rather than the internal. For them, it was all about how they looked and what they could do to appear righteous and religious to other people. But what about God? And that's where we have to realize that we can fool each other. People have done that throughout history. We can fool each other because we can pretend to be righteous even though God knows our heart. But we can't fool God. That's why I've even said, and I base this on Scripture, I 
I really believe that when we get to heaven, there's going to be some people that we're going to go, wow, I never thought you were going to be here. (laughs) And that actually is going to be a cool thing. The sad, sobering thing is there's going to be some people we thought were going to be there. And Jesus is going to say to them, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. Because for them, it was always about external rather than internal. Secondly, because they majored on minors rather than, and minored on major things. Jesus says in verse 42, woe, by the way, the word woe is an exclamation of grief and pain. In other words, Jesus saying, grief and pain is coming to you unless you change. Woe to you Pharisees, you give a tenth of your mint, of your rue and every herb, yet you neglect justice and love for God. He says you should have done these things without neglecting the others. Jesus is reminding us, let's make sure in our lives that we're focused on the big rocks, not the small ones. Let's make sure that our priorities are right and that the major focus of our life is where it should be and we are not getting caught up in things that God considers to be minor things over the things that should be more important to us. Then next, he clashed with them because they focused on self-promotion and recognition. Verse 43, Woe to you Pharisees! You love the best seats in the synagogue and uh, elaborate greetings in the marketplaces. For them, it was again always about putting themselves out there and making themselves look good in front of others. They cared more about how others viewed them than how God viewed them. Jesus is going to talk more about that in chapter 12. Then next notice, because their lives were subtly corrupting others. Verse 44, Woe to you, you are like unmarked graves, and people walk all over them without realizing it. Wow. You know what that is telling me? I need to be careful about who's influencing me. I need to be careful about who's influencing me. Remember now, these were the religious leaders of Israel. And yet Jesus is basically saying, those who are being influenced by you, you are the blind leading the blind. And yet he says, the problem is you're an unmarked grave. You you look good on the outside. And so that's why people... That's why we need discernment. That's why we need insight. That's why we need to be careful, especially about those who influence us the most. Or else they can really take us down a terrible path. I could give you example after example of even Christians who followed other Christians down a path that ended bad for both of them. Because neither one was in a good place. Next, Jesus clashed with them because they placed unnecessary burdens or expectations on others. Verse 46, Jesus replied, Woe to you experts in religious law as well. You load people down. You literally place a burden upon people. 
difficult to bear, yet he says, you yourselves refuse to touch the burdens with even one of your fingers. Let's be careful that we're not placing unnecessary burdens or expectations on others, especially, especially when we're not placing those same expectations upon ourselves. Because that's why Jesus clashed with the religious leaders. I even think sometimes even individually, we have to be careful that we're not expecting more out of us than what God does. Sometimes I run into Christians and begin talking to them and I feel like, you know, when I, when I meet them, they're, they're just like this, you know. And it's like, yeah, I love God. I'm, I'm serving God. And they, they have this weight. I mean, you can just, you can just see it. There, there's a weight on their life. And it's almost like either because of the way they were brought up or the teaching that they got or the people that influenced them, they thought that that's the way it was supposed to be. A dedicated, committed Christian is supposed to feel like the weight of the world is on them at all times. And they're just, they're just enduring life rather than enjoying it. And they're just plugging away. And yet Jesus said, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls because my yoke is easy. My burden is what? Light. So when I point that out, I say, could it be or is it possible that maybe you're placing things on yourself that God isn't even expecting of you? And if we do that to ourselves, guess what? We're going to do that to others. We're going to do that to others. If we run ourselves into the ground and we never take a break and we never rest and we look around and we see a Christian who's resting... We start to criticize. Man, they're not as devoted or dedicated or as committed as I am. I'd never take a break like that. I'm just going to refer you back to Mary and Martha from last week. That'll answer that question. Next, because they were a living contradiction. Jesus says in verse 47, Woe to you because you build the tombs of the prophets whom your ancestors killed. In other words, they, they were building up and using these tombs of the prophets as these great memorials and, and places, again, of, of religious gatherings and whatever. And yet, yeah, I guess our ancestors actually rejected them. And Jesus will go on to say, and your ancestors killed these prophets that now you're making a big deal about. And guess what? The prophets that God still sends to you, you're rejecting and killing. You did it with John the Baptist. You're going to do it with me. You're going to kill me. You're going to tell Pilate to crucify me. You're going to reject me, the greatest prophet of all, the Son of God. And yet you build these tombs? You're a contradiction. I'll give you an example from my own home church years ago that I'll never forget. When people major on minors and get themselves off with God... As Jesus would say, they swallow camels and they strain at gnats. 
and they become a living contradiction. And I'm going to use an example from my past. In our home church, during Christmas season, our church would put up several Christmas trees. I'm not here to debate you on whether, you know, Christmas trees. I'm just giving you this story. And this gentleman in our home church, he really did have a problem with any Christmas trees in the church. And I mean, he, he just made a big stink about it and caused a lot of problems. It came out a couple months later that during all this, he was having an affair. Living contradiction. <laughs> you're causing all these problems at the church because you're upset about a Christmas tree and you're committing adultery. Living contradiction. And then because they had an elitist mentality. Down in verse 52, he says, Woe to you experts in religious law. You've taken away the key to knowledge. You did not go in yourselves, and you hindered those who are going in. In other words, they were the only ones that had the knowledge, you know. People had to come to them to figure it out. They were the only ones that had the answers. That's how they could control people. They never encouraged people in their day to obviously read and study the Scriptures for themselves. Because that would take away who they wanted to be. And they were the only ones that had it right. Everyone who disagreed with them was wrong. Their way was the only way to see it. Elitist mentality. Jesus sort of stuck it right to him, didn't he? Which is why, notice the reaction in verse 53, when he went out from there, the experts in the law and the Pharisees began to oppose him bitterly, literally set themselves against, and to ask him hostile questions about many things, plotting against him. The word plotting here means to hunt down, to lie in wait, to prepare a trap, to catch him in something he might say. This was a turning point. In the ministry of Jesus. In all of this tonight, I want to simply wrap it up with this. God wants, I'm going to say it this way God's word demands a response. God's revelation demands a response, and God wants us to respond properly when He speaks to us. We're going to talk more about this on Sunday, in the weeks ahead. And so, I just want all of us here to just search our hearts and examine ourselves and say, God, am, am I being teachable? Am I truly receiving your word into my life. 
And not just to fill my head with fact, but am I receiving it in a way that changes the way I live, changes the way I think, changes the way I respond to things, changes the way I look at life, changes the way I look at others, change how I talk, changes how I plan my day, changes how I, what I do with my day. Am I truly receiving Your Word? As you speak to us, God, are we receptive and teachable? God, I I believe that you are bringing here on Sundays and Tuesdays a people who truly want to be receptive and teachable to your word. That many of us have gotten to a point in our life where we realize that the tragedy of life is not that it's so short. The tragedy is that it took so long for most of us to really start living it. Jesus, You came to give us abundant life. That's what You said. That's Your promise. And You promised us that we would be able to live abundantly if we would simply just surrender our lives to You to stop living for ourselves, to allow God, Your Holy Spirit, to overwhelm us and to fall heavily upon us. God, may Your glory rest heavily upon our church and upon the people who come here on Sundays and Tuesdays. May we allow You to have weight in our life. May what You say carry unbelievable weight. May what You think carry unbelievable weight in our lives in order that we can truly receive your glory and bring you glory by our lives. God, thank you for this time together tonight. Thank you for our fellowship time. Thank you for gathering us together with one another and around your word. God, I just pray that throughout this week, that if maybe we haven't already, that, Lord, we would, we would be more intentional about being thankful and grateful and appreciative for who You are and what You've done and what You are doing in our lives. Because, Lord, even I've seen in my own life that when I, when I strive to be more thankful, I see more things to be thankful for. It's like as I begin to count my blessings... I begin to see more blessings. God, help us to be a grateful, thankful people who are mindful of Your favor in our lives. Thank You for the growth that's taking place. Lord, we're excited about what You want to do with us. Help us, Lord, not to hinder You and get in Your way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. Please go back before you leave and have at least three or four slices of pie. Have a wonderful time. We'll see some of you on Sunday.